Hello, and welcome to Threadings, the newsletter and podcast where we explore Black feminism, love studies, and other things keeping and collecting me. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for asking. I have an essay for you today that is a little bit more honest about my place in beauty. I said, you know, this season of Threadings, we're discussing the self. We're, we're doing a strong self-inventory because I need to be able to love myself well. And I can't love myself well. I can't love my community well. I can't love my loved ones well if I don't know the tools I have. If I don't know what I'm working with. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? So I felt a need to do a strong understand like a strong inventory of self imagine like the self is a closet or something that has a bunch of things inside of it whether you put it there or not it's good to know before you start you know building your barn or whatever what's in your shed so that's what i'm doing the cost of love studies is that it requires you to be incredibly cognizant of who you are and what you are and why you do what you do so I am here with an essay on the body, on my body in particular, entitled, There is no safety in being beautiful. Reflections from a life spent on display. With the subline, a child model turned grad school stripper talks openly about the reality of being shackled to beauty and the negotiations a life of beauty investment necessitates. Here we're talking about capital B beauty, as in desirability, as in the want to be given rewards and the position of being given rewards for the way that your body looks, regardless of whether you did something to earn it, quote unquote, or not. But we're going to unpack that a lot in this essay. So grab your tea. I'm having pistachio. Back to the basics. This is an essay that was previously published as being ugly is a sin I am happy to commit. Hello. It is a Friday in April, and I'm here to admit that I have lied to you all again. (laughs) I am here outside my favorite coffee shop as of writing this with my stomach out for the first time in eons. I used to have a terminal addiction to crop tops, and now here I am hyper aware that my stomach is out. For the better part of a year now, I've taken a break from being on display, capital O, capital D, on display. I've been out the club. I've been campaigning on TikTok to buy my tribe some farm equipment, which is very, very different than making a video to have hundreds of strangers comment and ask me if they know how gorgeous I am, which the answer is, of course I do. Of course I do. (laughs) This is the longest time I have ever gone without my nails done or without my hair done or without a facial since I became someone who was chronically on display sometime in my teenage years that happened and Now I am breathing differently as someone who is just existing in this world for the sake of it. I am here feeling like a feather floating back down to the body that I left on earth. It's taken me months, months to balance out the reality of being naked and drunk for money with the reality of my straight laced life (laughs) as a content creator and a mental health professional. Not that I wasn't a mental health professional while I was being drunk and naked for money. The two existed in tandem. It was kind of a lot. It was like a Hannah Montana moment. But anyways, lots of that balance, like the balance, the whiplash of being here now, being in my body now, has come with me being honest about why that level of exposure in the club felt so easy and so natural for me. Um, Dancing wasn't odd at all. 
I got into dancing and it felt very much like normal. And that is honestly the unusual part, right? Because if I'm honest, which I'm trying to be with you all these days, my internet friends, if I am honest, it's because being semi-clothed or not at all clothed for money wasn't all that much different from the life that I had been living since I was a child. The life I am still living, content creation and stripping and modeling and public speaking, all of them all have had this instantaneous success for me because I am beautiful, capital B beautiful. Honest, that's why. I didn't really have much of an awkward phase becoming an adult. I didn't have much of an awkward phase becoming a stripper because so many things felt just like my first day of work. The gendered, racial, youthful performance of black girlhood, beautiful, Black Girlhood, capital B Beautiful, Black Girlhood. The first time I walked on a runway, which was 12 years old, the first time I came on camera for the public, which was 23, I'm sorry, came on camera as in like was present on camera. I was never a cam girl, I didn't have the brass for it, but much love and respect to my comrades out there, stronger than the US Marines. My first time speaking on panels in college at 19, public speaking at 14, even interviewing for scholarships as a teenager, 17 years old making sure that I was as capital B beautiful as possible. I have never been ugly, capital U ugly. We'll get into what these things lead me but I've never been ugly, I've never even been close. The one consistent parenting lesson I received from my mother, also dark skin, also disarmingly beautiful, was how easy it is to be the exception to the rule when you know the rules inside and out. Last year, I released this essay on my Substack that was originally entitled, Being Ugly is a Sin I Am Happy to Commit. And that's a fucking lie. That's a lie. Not because I don't like the ugly things about me, I in fact cherish them, but it's a lie because I am so, so far from structural ugliness. The reason I cherish the ways that my body is not desirable, oh, hold on. The reason I cherish the ways that my body is not desirable is because I have been desired since I was a child. I've been desired since I knew what it was to be looked at and gawked at. I've been desired since before I felt that way about myself, about my body. Now, 24 years old, this is the first time that I have physical traits that come under any sort of structural critiques. Most impressively and most importantly, my breast sag. My breast sags now and they wrinkle like my mother always warned me they would. With bated breath, she would warn me what would happen to my breasts if I did not soul tie myself to bras and I ignored her. And then I lived a life where I was swinging from a pole topless for a living, LMAO. They sag now. They sag and they swing and they don't sit directly under my chin and I breathe an honest sigh of relief because maybe that means I will be left alone a little bit more. That's wishful thinking. I know it is, but it is also honest. The relationship that I have to the bits of me that are a little bit ugly is that way because the world still bends at my touch. I am disarmingly beautiful and I know that. My survival at times has hinged upon me knowing that and using it well. I have no genuine conception of what it is like to be regarded as less than in this world because of the body that I move in. Being ugly is a sin that I am happy to commit. It's a cute title. Like, it's cute. But it's not honest. It's a cute idea, but it's not like I actually have a choice, right? None of us have the choice. Sin 
is this word that implies the intentional decision to deviate from what is good, what is righteous, what is holy, whatever. And while it is an accurate way to talk about the cult of beauty, because it is a cult, while it is an accurate way to discuss the way that beauty as a hierarchy, as a religion, moves in this society, we don't actually have a choice in where we fall on the hierarchy. I certainly don't have a choice. I don't really have the option to deviate. I am stuck here in this body. I am up here. The exception to the rule and simultaneously the shining, shimmering proof of the existence of the rule. In Threadings, the newsletter and podcast where we discuss Black feminism and love studies and other things that hold me together, we're spending some time conducting a strong inventory of the self. I told you all this episode would cover the self that is my physical person and that led me back to this essay. The first iterations of love that I have for my body were uncomplicated because I have always had a body that did what I asked it to. I was not interested in being beautiful at all (laughs) as a child until I understood how much opportunity was available to me should I commit myself to marketing. I remember distinctly the teenage years of constant and honest appraisal, watching my body change because of puberty, because of sports, because of food insecurity, because of self-harm and the willful neglect that I put myself through, and noticing how I slid up and down, up and down the ladder with the changes. I dedicated at least 20 minutes of mere time a day to studying myself and playing to my strengths or intentionally punishing myself. And I had so much self-loathing, not in my physical person. Like I really did not receive um, critical or negative feedback about my body until I was like 12. And that was from classmates that were like, your nose is big. I was like, girl, if you don't get the fuck out of here. By then it was like, oh, it was was over, it was over. I was very convinced of my own beauty by then. So it was self-loathing, not necessarily of my like physical person, of not feeling beautiful or not feeling like I wasn't enough. It was self-loathing because I thought I was a shitty person. Like that started to happen around like eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. I just had this like deep feeling of wrongness. Like I was, I was a person that didn't deserve to be here. So in response to that, I had so much self-loathing and such a strong wish for death as a preteen that I intentionally stopped brushing my teeth because I knew that it would make me uglier. And I thought that I deserved that. I was also getting breasts at the time, these big ripe breasts just jutting out of my chest. Like there's no PG way to say that, but that's what happened to me as a child. And it can be really traumatic to have that happen to you when you're a kid and everyone is looking at you, like they're gazing at you and you are like, what has my body done to me? I can't say that that didn't have anything to do with it, especially as your cute resident trans mask in waiting. Anyways, I was already making negotiations, right, about what parts of beautiful girlhood I would participate in and what parts were too much to reconcile as a child. And I really have not stopped negotiating. I'm sitting here as an adult recalling how white strangers, white adult strangers would reach out and touch me as a little girl and how visibly odd they were that me and my mother and my sister were so unambiguously black and also so undeniably gorgeous. People used to say that to our faces. I've never seen such a beautiful black person before. I don't typically find black women attractive, but you you know how many times I've heard that in the club? I would say if I had a dollar for every time, but usually the men that were saying that to me were indeed giving me dollars. But in any case, like the top of the beauty hierarchy 
or as near the top as a black girl can get. It's not a blessing. It's not aspirational. It is the farce. It is a farce. It's the farce of pretending that being chosen stands in for the loneliness of being a status symbol. Being at the top of the beauty hierarchy is where you go to pretend like it is not deeply lonely being a status symbol. So I return to the text In the Name of Beauty from Tressie McMillan Cottom to explore my body, this time rewritten with more honesty about who I am and where I fall. If you've already heard the bulk of this essay, I more than encourage you to give it another listen, not just for the things that have changed or been added or revised, but also because reading and rereading is so crucial to learning. Learn slowly. Learn slowly and learn with repetition. Let's begin, as always. I always have to say this, this is a one-take reading, meaning I do not go back, I don't edit, I don't do anything to these, but give them to you as sincerely and as authentically as I possibly can. So if I mess up and if I make mistakes, that just is what it is. I am also, right now, at this moment, on TikTok Live, I'm reading this live. So it's a studio audience, shout out to y'all. Send up a like if you are listening to this on TikTok as we speak. I'm really excited to be back to content creation. I took a long break, especially because being on camera really does fuck with your head. Like seeing myself everywhere, it can sometimes be a lot of whiplash. Sometimes I need to step away. So I really appreciate you all being here for me as I return. And I'm letting you know now there will come a point in which I need to get up and plug in my phone. So everybody be cool. <laughs> all right. Studying the internal self requires study of the body. If you're on TikTok, get your pens out because we're about to get theoretical. My first assertion is that I believe my own consciousness, I believe in my own consciousness with the same tangible surety that I have in my body. I believe as much in my mind and in my soul as is my physical corporal body, the body I can touch and see. I think contemporary thought, especially Western contemporary thought, likes to imagine the body, the capital B body, as a secondary characteristic to the almighty mind. We like to pretend that there is this chain of command, that the body is always subject to the mind. Um, or, or the soul, or whatever psyche, whatever light of consciousness you have buzzing inside your meat sack, right? The idea here is that you are the thing that inhabits your human form and not your human form itself. The idea is that you are the thing inside of the body and that you are not the body of your own accord. I personally, I think that that is a load of shit. I think that's a load of fresh horse shit. How am I more of my mind than I am my body? And who decides those rules? Who benefits from us thinking that we are somehow better than or divorced from or higher than our own bodies? And why is it so common to hear that our bodies are flesh prisons? What does that say about the world that we live in if we think carcerally, if we think in carceral terms about our physical manifestations of self? So I fundamentally reject this. I think that I am just as much my body as I am my mind. And I assert this with a couple background identities as a therapist, as an avid reader, as a mind who is sharpened by my soft and sinewed body, and as a body who is compelled by and collected by my mind's expansion. This is the second unit of threadings. This is unit two, my podcast threadings that I'm reading from right now, formerly known as the garden space. And we're here continuing on with this essay that seeks to explore human connection, the human connection that I have with my own self. 
the union or the disunion of the presence of my mind that is wrapped up neatly in my body. Quick definition for body, capital B. The body, noun, the physical self which respirates. The flesh and bone that houses every thought an omnipotent narrator could never find the words to say. The method we first interact with the world are bodies in the same space, skin to skin contact, the physical thing which feels through being touched and seen and held, being cast aside or hit or isolated. I argue that I am as much my body as I am my metaphysical self, my mind, my floating soul, my otherwise packaged and perfect ideas of what makes a human a human. Whatever I think about myself, the body has been here. Whatever I think about, postulate on, theorize on, body been here, thinking or not. Respirating for me, communicating for me. The first self that ever was, and likely the last self that I will ever be, is my body. My mind will have withered and been gone, and my body will be here, breathing. If that's the case, I believe I would do well to study the physical nature of human connection, and I would like to take you all with me as I try to wrap my mind around the fact that my body does not need me to think. <laughs> all these self-important musings about what I am or am not. I am someone who imagines that I am in community with myself. How do you talk about the intimacy of the self without the body and about feelings which live in the body, about sex and politics and the, the sex that politics come wrap up in and the vice versa? How do you begin with the mind when the body is the one that held us first? I have a couple questions for us at the start of things. One, or rather section one. How does the internal self coexist with the body? In what ways do they inform each other? Are they ever truly and completely separate? Is that even possible? And if it is possible, do I want that? What do I gain? What do I gain from conceiving of the mind and of the body as independent forces? And if I don't stand to gain from that, who does? And two, section two. How does my body inform my conception of self, internal and external? How does my body exist and interact with world systems? How can I create safe spaces for my body, both personally and within community? What does that safety necessitate? I'm going to attempt to answer these things, those questions by reading and writing and talking through it. I will be learning in real time. If you need to orient yourself to this online space or you need more clarification on what that means for me as someone that makes art on the internet, I recommend listening to or reading the essay, The Garden Space, an introduction. You can find that on my newsletter and on my podcast, ismatu.substack.com. Or if you, wherever you listen to podcasts, just type in threadings. It's, it's right there. Threadings with a period because that's the end of the sentence. Yeah. <laughs> but I will say this at the top of every unit uh, so we can all be on the same page about what to expect from one another. I am engaging in the vulnerable process of learning in real time. And that means that I am in conversation with three things, in conversation with three entities, myself, my peers, and my teachers. So first I will introduce myself. My name is Ismatu Gwendolyn and I am committed to learning and feeling through the sticky nature of human connection. The study of love, or the lack thereof, 
I have scholastic dedication to African-American studies, global health, clinical social work, and poetry. Your girls got your masters. Shout out the homie, done with you Chicago forever, thank God. <laughs> and I have academic histories and roots with Northwestern University and the University of Chicago, like I just said, whatever. I am an information anarchist and I act on that politic by learning and growing and sharing what I learn, both on my TikTok where I do personal and political education, on my Instagram where I be doing the same kind of shit, and most especially here with you all at our shared plot on this space. I will address my community. That's you all. Hi, TikTok. <laughs> True learning attunes new lessons to beat out of or sorry true learning attunes new lessons to the attunes new lessons to the beat of oneself and one's community i mean attunes as in like like you tune an orchestra like you you if you ever had a string instrument you tune the instrument to itself and then you tune yourself to your orchestra if you are here week in and week out i consider us to be in community with one another as we learn grab a chair bring your friends you are free to ask me any questions or leave me any comments and that goes for you too if you're watching live if you have any questions or you have any comments for me pop them in the chat send up a like i'll do a review once this is all said and done if you are listening on threadings or on a podcast app you are free to use the comment feature available to us on substack or if you're on the newsletter and you get these straight to your inbox go ahead and hit that reply i see them all I see all the things you all say to me because it's important, I think, to be in sincere community with one another just because I'm the one on the stage does not mean that I don't want to hear from you all in the audience. So thinking in isolation is only cute for rich white men geniuses. I personally, me, Ismatsu, I need to be knitted in the thoughts of other people like a quilt. Please do not make this a one-way conversation. And I will also express gratitude and invitations for my teachers. Theory is a guiding light for me in the constant wade and waves of the world, so I am picking up some handfuls of North Star direction from a couple impeccable scholars. This essay focuses on Dr. Tracy McBillam Cottom, with essay In the Name of Beauty from her book Thick and other essays, which we will be discussing at length today. On later podcast episodes, Dr. Sabrina Strings and her work with Fearing the Black Body, the Racial Origins of Fat Phobia, and excerpts from Dr. Deborah Gray White's Aren't I a Woman, Female Slaves in the Plantation South, and Deshaun L. Harrison's seminal text, Belly of the Beast, The Politics of Anti-Fatness is Anti-Blackness. I love them all. I love them all. I have to shout all of these teachers out. Thank you so much for helping me and for giving me words to the feelings I have about this body that makes a fool of me for trying to make sense of it. Here we go. This is the essay, strap in. Notes from In the Name of Beauty. Section one, I am ugly. I'm actually gonna get up here and plug in my cell phone. Section one, I am ugly. <laughs> Tressie McMillan Cottom is not the first writer to postulate on beauty as a whole. However, she is the first to imprint her words on my person. After I read Thick and other essays, I felt like I had gotten a tattoo. I was in my final year of undergrad being unsurreptitiously pushed into the real world the world that collapsed around me both personally and politically at the drop of a hat since I graduated in June of 2020. I was sitting in a swivel chair of a too cold classroom 
when I found Dr. Mpulankatam to be impressive. And not just in that she has an impressive resume or writing prowess, but impressive that I found her formidable. Impressive in that through her work, she was able to touch me and leave a mark. Her thoughts and her pen and her deep understandings of the conditions that we were navigating, that we are navigating, especially as black women. And most especially, the apologies that she did and does not make for our position in this world and being honest about it, stuck itself to me. Her words stuck themselves in my brain and pressed. I mean, she was impressive. She impressed her words on me. I am changed and I am grateful. Macmillan Cottom opens her essay in the name of beauty by revisiting words she wrote that made black women angry. She got some deep-hearted church girl mm's out of me that mm, yep, while I was reading. Reading the entry into the analysis, if I did not relate to those sentiments then, I most definitely feel the weight of the wrong people angry at you now, now that I am on the internet. People be getting mad, 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 mad. This essay recounts, reflects, and then reconvicts the reader about multiple assertions. However, I think that the one people took up the most grievance with, people were most up in arms about, was the following. I, Tress McMillan Cottom, am ugly, capital U. She used the word unattractive here, but unattractive and capital U ugly mean the exact same thing. What is not pretty is ugly, and there really is no in-between. And hoes were mad. You would think that would be a simpler sentiment, right? What's not pretty is ugly and there is no in-between. But people, like, hoes get mad, hoes be mad when you, when you say it like that. Hoes across racial, economic, generational, and gender signifiers were mad, mad. And it's a simple statement, but it provokes equally simple but uncomfortable follow-up questions. Why? Why are you ugly? Why do you feel comfortable saying so? And then a bit further, if you're ugly, what am I? Now we're talking. Of course, I encourage you to read the essay for yourself if you would like the text, but you can't afford it. Or if you would like to sponsor the cost of information sharing, if you'd like to sponsor the book for somebody else, please email me at ismatu.gwendolyn at gmail.com. No reader left behind. That is our policy at Threadings. The question of the standard, who makes the standard or what makes the standard? It's pretty easily digestive. White people, land owning white people, land owning white men, not just people, created the means of measurement for what makes a marketable and effective wife to continue and expand an imperialist white ethnostate. White people, white man, rich people, made up wife as a way to consolidate capital. That's what it is. That's where beauty standards come from. A racist and genocidal beauty standards follow when the entire society was built up upon racism and genocide, right? Makes sense, right? This part of it is not hard. Or if it is hard, if this is the first time that you're ever hearing ideas like this, I have a lovely TikTok series explaining the basics and the effects of capital B beauty. It is linked in the newsletter, or you can find it at eastmatu.gwendolyn. I'm eastmatu.gwendolyn everywhere. Standards of beauty are visual and visceral. Outright saying, I am ugly, acts as sacrilege against the holy and rigid performance of wielding and coveting beauty. It is swiftly corrected. 
You can't walk around and just say, I am ugly. People will correct the hell out of you, even if you are structurally correct. The charges brought up against the author, Dr. McMillan Cottom, for breaking the beauty rules are included, but not limited to. Attention seeking, are you just saying this for attention? Fishing for compliments, you just want people to rush out of their way and insist that you are indeed the most gorgeous thing I've ever seen. Self-hatred. You must hate yourself. You must hate what you look like. Or misunderstandings the intentions of benevolent white people, benevolent, quote unquote, white people, when they reach out to touch you, a stranger, as you are, as if you are a very soft, rabies-free pet monkey. <laughs> look at the manner those reprimands minimize and individualize the claim, right? Dr. McMillan Cotton made no assertions about her personal self-esteem or her ability to date or if men find her desirable or what other people must think about her. She stated a structural fact. She stated a fact. I am outside the flowing cornucopia of marketable beauty. That's what she said. To be unpretty, to be a have not is to be unattractive. It is to be ugly. That is a neutral and an evidenced statement at worst. A common counter-argument usually crops up at this time, the but-all. But a long-haired, doe-eyed darling will sigh with one single tear clumping their bottom lashes. But, but don't we all suffer? Don't we all suffer under these rigid and, and putative beauty standards? Yes, beloved, we do. Yes, we do. See, Macmillan Cottom on the fifth page of this essay has a direct thing for you right there, that is the violence of gender. And it happens to all of us in slightly different ways. I am talking about a kind of capital. That is in the text. Stay with me here, it's from the same page. Beauty isn't actually what you look like. Beauty is not actually what you look like. Beauty is the preferences that people reproduce for the existing social order. Beauty is not actually what you look like. Beauty is the preferences that people reproduce for the existing social order. What is beautiful is whatever will keep weekend lake parties safe from stranger, darker people. That's on page five of that essay. All capital is world-making. Beauty is the access to that world. All capital is world-making. Okay, beauty is access to that world. Beauty swipes the card to let you in to those weekend lake parties. But it does not necessarily mean that you own that capital. Beauty is the equivalent of having best-selling top number one hits without owning your masters. Beauty is a kind of capital that exists as a ticket into the door of paradise. I want you to picture this with me, okay? Picture a perfect pool party. It is a gorgeous 88 degree day, just hot enough so that you really want to be in that water. And everybody has the newest swimsuit from Target. Those joints are cute as hell every time I look at them, even though I know my titties going to fall right out of those bitches. There's the best liquor, the best barbecue on the grill. Everybody's got their suntan lotion out or their sunscreen if you are um, a melanin deficient. <laughs> the most wonderful ringing laughter floating above the most beautiful people you've ever seen like beach balls. It is perpetually golden hour. It smells like sunscreen and sleek perfumed oiled bodies brushing up against one another and fruit trees blooming. It's spring and you, you are not in the party. You are standing outside the wooden gate perpetually looking in and you're meant to. That's the place that you're meant to hold in society, watching. 
never really being invited in, never really taking part. That, outside the party, that's the place for the have-nots. In fact, the most you will ever be if you are a have-not, the most you will ever be as an aspiring have-not, if you're a have-not that really just wants to get in that party, the most you will ever be is an exception to the rule. Beauty is the tool of whiteness. Beauty is the tool of whiteness. You will only ever be an exception to the rule. And what is that? What is whiteness? Just a quick review. Whiteness is a violent socio-cultural regime legitimized by property to always make clear who is black by fastidiously delineating who is officially white. That's McMillan Cottom on page six. Break that down a little bit. Whiteness is a violent socio-cultural regime. That's what we always say, like, uh, racial, race is a social construct, right? We made whiteness that we, we, they, they made whiteness up to justify what? Property, the turning of land into capital, the genocide of taking that land into capital. Whiteness is culturally made up a thing to justify the conversion of land into property. And it also exists to make super, super clear who gets to own the land, who gets to own the means of production, and who don't. And black people don't. Vestigiously delineating who is officially white, as in who gets access and who works the land for the white people. So it makes sense then that such an amorphous party of people would need tools that are able to shape shift beside them. Because what is beautiful? Does anybody have like a clear and consistent idea about what beauty is for always across all cultures, across all time periods? Is there ever one thing that remains overtly beautiful? No, it shifts from time period, it shifts from culture. It shifts from what the people in power find most beneficial. Whiteness, the thing in power right now, constantly cannibalizes new groups to maintain their power, right? The original culture vultures, we know that. Beauty is the perfect weapon, the nebulous nature of what you could be when we talk about beautiful, capital B beautiful, structurally beautiful, means that you can convince people of happenstance. You can sell them the plastic lies of individual preferences of coincidental trends. You can make the brainwashing incredibly easy to swallow, tasty even. Beauty in white supremacist world making is directly tied to worth. Beauty in white supremacist world making, the world that we exist in right now, is directly tied to worth. If the task is to convince a public of predefined haves and have nots, that participating in this compulsory beauty pageant for basic societal safety is a worthwhile task. If we want to convince people that gambling your health, community, sincerity, affection of all types, even safe housing, is okay to gamble based on whether you are considered beautiful or not, you do need to convince them that they could win this beauty pageant. You do need to convince them that it's worth participating because one day, one day, you, a have-not, you might become a have. And then you might get all the structural access that haves get to enjoy. You might, you, outside of the pool party, one day we might open up these gates and let you in. 
Macmillan Cotton speaks to this exact paradox. These two ideas, unique blessing and earned reward, are antithetical to one another, right? Unique blessing and earned reward, antithetical to one another. So this is where I have to stop and insert myself. I, the author of today's podcast, I say, I have never known what it is like to be outside the pool party. I owe you that honesty, right? I'm writing this from the shade of a wide-brimmed hat and oversized sunglasses. I'm sipping the champagne left over from the stack I just made, letting a middle-aged man breathe hard at the sight of my bare chest, okay? I am writing to you from the reality of being favored and being exploited by the people that let me in the pool party every time. My card clears every time. And I am only here if I am okay to be oiled up and topless and what is okay to a 22 year old mountain girl trying to survive by herself in this big city. What I'm trying to say is, extended metaphors aside, I'm writing about beauty from somewhere near the top of the hierarchy, right? I'm not at the tippy top. I'm never gonna be, you know, a, a busty white blonde. I'm never, I'm never gonna be like a, what's her name, Sydney Sweeney? I've actually never seen Insecure. Nope, nope, sorry. I've never seen Euphoria. That was just muscle memory. I know she's not on Insecure. <laughs> I've never seen Euphoria, but uh, I do know about Sydney Sweeney because she's gorgeous. And she's like the classic Hollywood epitome of what is beauty in this day and age. That's the top, that's the tippy top of the hierarchy. I'm never gonna be that. I'm never gonna be sitting right there, but I can get pretty close, quite honestly. I'm somewhere close. There's only so much agency I have. There's only so much choice I have. And the privileges that come with capital B beauty do not actually grant me a lot of freedom to make things better. I fundamentally do not believe, we're gonna talk about this over the course of the rest of the essay, but I fundamentally don't believe that beauty is something that gets better from working on the inside. I don't think that the hierarchies of beauty can be toppled if you're somewhere near the top. I don't think that I am the most important voice in conversations about the regime of beauty, the cult of beauty, because I'm someone that consistently and routinely benefits. And I am someone that doesn't really have a choice in the way that capital B Beauty isolates you, in the way that it opens you up to exploitation, in the way that it creates insincere relationships with your own body, the way that I saw that my own body was capital rather than my own body as something that breathed for me and loved me. There's only so much I can say, but I will be honest about my positionality here. I do my best, honestly, at least when I was dancing, maybe not so much now. But especially when I was dancing, I did my best to pretend like there was a choice. I sip my champagne and I do not mind being ogled, I guess. If I knew to be cautious of men, I did not learn early enough to be cautious of white women. Oh, that's a word from the text. Definitionally, black women are not beautiful, capital B beautiful, except for any whiteness that may be in, on, or around them, and the anointing marks of whiteness can include wealth, slim features on the face or the body, smoothness of flesh and hair and color, lightness in the eyes or across the skin, etc. And white women need it to be that way. Be honest, be honest. White women need it to be that way to convince themselves that the work of beauty is worth it. In fact, 
every person invested in the beauty hierarchy needs it to be that way. We need the rules to convince ourselves that the work is worth it and that you could win one day. Desirability is a language that changes between cultures and circumstances and you, the beautiful, you, the wannabe beautiful, are expected to always be fluent in that language. It is vital that you are always fluent. Much of your safety depends on you being able to ensure that your body is the right kind of body for the space. Or if it is the wrong kind forever, if you always have the wrong body, right? If there's something about you that is something that society, this society does not fuck with. If you are fat, if you are disabled, if you are in some way disfigured, infertile, if you are someone that does not make a good wife for a rich white man, which is what beauty was designed to do. If you are the wrong kind of body forever, then you are expected to restrain yourself and punish yourself in the correct way and do so publicly. If you are ugly, capital U, if you are ugly, you are expected to be sad about it and loud about how sad it is to be at the bottom of the hierarchy how do we know who the winners are if the losers aren't weeping like the end of mario kart the performance of ugly as in ugly the systematic exclusion of a certain kind of body from access to resources access to intimacy access to true connection because their body does not fit our standards if you are ugly you are expected to be sad about it. The performance of ugly shame, that sadness, that outward display of hating yourself is so delicious. It is so delicious to pretty people that they, we, might reward you for it. It's almost the same sweet precarity as actually being marketable. Think Game of Thrones, Mr. Johnson swinging his keys level of shame, shame, shame. <laughs> that performance, the it's so sad and awful to be an ugly loser thing that we expect from black people, from fat people, from kinky coiled people, from disabled people, etc. To do this performance, it's necessary in the game of beauty to validate the winners. It assures them, us, we at the top that the restriction and the suffering that comes with emptying out your guts, literally and metaphorically, to win the game is worth avoiding the shame of being ugly. And what do you win from being at the top, right? The pursuit of beauty transforms the body in its breathing entirety into an echoey status symbol. Status symbols don't respirate. The constant apology and the spectacle of it all acts as an eternal and internal whipping post. It means that even down to the littlest basic human actions, finding seating, eating a meal, dressing in warm weather, existing in public, the ugly are meant to flog themselves. You are meant to punish yourself for being visible while being ugly, or others will do so for you. Beautiful people can then say, well, at least I can trade my suffering for money and validation. God help us. And that's the game. That's the beauty game. We all suffer and some of us get a pool party. It must be that way, or at least thought of that way. Democratic, able to be earned. 
You cannot break the rules of beauty charades by just stating the obvious, as Dr. McMillan Cottom did, and just openly calling herself unattractive. You can't do that. That's gonna make people mad, game over when you do that. Beauty instantaneously becomes revealed as a commodity and not just a commodity, right, a lottery. Distributed unequally, decided genetically and at random. You don't do anything to earn it. You don't do anything to earn being beautiful. You don't do anything to earn what it gets you in this world. If you did not earn beauty, you never really had the real power to reject it. And then you are just as vulnerable as I am in your own way. That's from the text. If you did not earn beauty, if you never had the real power to reject it, then you are just as much of a vulnerable subject as I am in your own way. And she's exactly right. Let's keep going. This is section two, if your status ain't hood. <laughs> so here we are, the same long-haired, doe-eyed song. But Lupita, but Naomi. Yes, right? I know you see them. The glittering, dark skin, swimming like flies and milk among the rest of the shining, beautiful people. That's me. I'm there, waving at you. Hey pretending to be having a good time. Or maybe the pool party that you covet access to looks entirely different. Maybe it smells like edge control and juicy couture and a fire hydrant raining down fresh summertime relief. Maybe there's a criminal amount of bass. There is most definitely a criminal amount of ass. And even here, still, bodies. Capital B, bodies. Laughter floating above the most beautiful people you've ever seen, half of them with golden teeth. Enter Beauty's younger sister, cut with baking soda. Desirability. I'm sorry if you heard the mic just ricket. My cat decided to jump on me. Everybody say hi to Lemon. <laughs> Indulge me in a short passage. From the text. I am dark, physically and culturally. My complexion is not close to whiteness and my family roots reflect on the economic realities of the generations of dark complexioned black people. We are rural, even when we move to cities. Our mobility is modest. Our out marriage rates to non-black men are negligible. Our social networks do not connect to elite black social institutions. And when we move around in the world, we brush up against the criminal justice system. I am not located at the top of hip hop's attenuated beauty hierarchy. I am at best in the middle. As Michael Jackson once sang, when you're too high to get over it and too low to get under it, you are stuck in the middle and the pain is thunder. That's from the text, those aren't my words. But look, is where, look at where beauty is located here, not just in physicality, not just in or on my body, your body, the body, in proximity to wealth. Beauty is present, not just in the literal physical body, but in proximity to wealth. Proximity to whiteness, right? Because we know in this society, wealth and white are as synonymous as the, the powers that be can make them. And not even just whiteness, right? The right kind of whiteness. There is nothing marketable about being black and rural unless you constantly apologize for it. And Dr. McMillan Cottom, sorry, Dr. McMillan Cottom, for all the accusations of low self-esteem, never fucking does. I know that's right. I am here in this text too. Rural, poor, 
generationally poor, generationally and spiritually from the mountains, capital F, capital T, capital M, from the mountains, trademarked. I will be honest again in telling y'all that the party I always wanted to be at is this one, where I am desired by men I might actually like to fuck or at least like the performance of fucking. This was the first few morsels of my 20s relishing this after party invite, the party where niggas actually want to look at me or looking at me, the thrill of being not just classically beautiful but desired desirable finally having that be a, bo- a a feeling that felt at home in my body now that i was grown enough to want to be desired i spent a good while here pretending that this kind of beauty capital was different it was different and pretending it was something better and something fun picture me a tie-on too small triangle bikini and shorts with the ass out still in my iridescent glitter pleasers letting somebody with a whole roll of goals talk me out my drawers and honestly i'm gonna tell you for real it's a short conversation i'm very easily persuaded <laughs> i keep spilling hennessy on my titties i keep pretending like it's fun and like it's something i like i only like being desired like that when it's naked and out in the open like a live wire instead of white men telling me in hushed tones in the back room after hundreds of dollars that they've never touched a black girl before. I only like being desired like that by black men with stacks in their back pocket and a steady unflinching gaze at me. I like it only when I am drunk. Money makes me so horny. It's why I always did so much better in those kinds of clubs. It's also why I have to stop drinking and why I have stopped drinking because it helps me realize how much I only like this shit when I'm drunk. We examine the beauty of whiteness, featurism, hair color and texture, skin coloring, sure, of course, all of those, but also wealth, the right kind of wealth wealth and capital, social wealth, the correct type of upward mobility, the right company, which varies depending on culture, the appropriate accolades, enough to be impressive, but not competitive. Those will always get you social capital, right? A different kind of beauty, capital B, to be exchanged for the correct kind of attention and rewarded with pedestals and a plexiglass cage where folks can ooh and ah at you, a status symbol an exotic animal. Where white folks will have my black ass in a zoo, black men of means will keep me on an invisible leash, two paces behind them. And then if you're reading this as I have not, you are meant to assume that being desired is better than the shame and isolation of complete sneering rejection. A plexiglass cage is meant to be more appealing than dreary iron bars and shackles. The best you can be is desirable. Beauty and desirability, they're not necessarily synonymous, but they do hinge on and produce the same sort of strange swinging fruit. 
I also want to note our differences here between me, the author of this essay, this newsletter, this podcast that I'm reading from right now, and Dr. McMillan Cotta, the author of the text that we're soaking in, In the Name of Beauty. I am pretty damn near the top of the hip-hop's attenuated beauty hierarchy. I know so because I am constantly in professions where I make money off of the way that my face and body looks. I know this because I routinely made double the money when men of particular demographics came in my club. If I am to show up and shake my little ass and go home, Soldier by Destiny's Child is a wonderful rubric for me. If his status ain't hood, I ain't checking for it. What do black women in the music video look like in that music video? The ones with shining bodies, the stars of the show, the ones that we are clearly supposed to be looking and looking at. What do they look like? What building blocks of beauty do they have? Yes, they're not white, but of course they're not. Are they attempting to be palatable to regular, regular white folk? Who are the people they want smacking their lips? Black aesthetics are still able to garner and secure capital. Black aesthetics are more than able, in fact, to garner and secure capital, specifically, though, off the labor of black women's beauty work. Macmillan Cottom notes that too. Not to be left out, we are ingenious. Black women are ingenious. We reinvent and redefine the work and work and work it takes to make space for ourselves to be considered capital B beautiful. And yet the people that lick their lips and sign the checks, they're still men and they will still leave your ass for a white girl. Oh, the men. Beauty must appear democratic for two reasons. Beauty, the hierarchy, the lottery system, it must appear democratic for two reasons. Firstly, to convince the well-meaning but the tragically misinformed voters that their vote matters. <laughs> Macmillan Cottom also stressed this point when considering why white women are so enraged by her calling her own black self unattractive as if she cannot taste the water that we're all swimming in. The holiness of the vote is also enforced by black women that are mad, mad, mad at her because they have no desire to be ugly by association. This is the cis, thin, straight plight of black women. The cis, thin, straight black women. They be in my comments too. Talk about, well, why can't we just expand the beauty standards? Why it always got to be white women that are beautiful? Why can't we just expand the beauty standards so that I fit? That's really what you're trying to say. So that we fit. We, I, you. So that you fit. Those of us that are close to the top of the pyramid are close enough to hope that we can be the exception, right? To still be desired by all. Close enough to the top of the beauty hierarchy, we always ask, well, why can't we be included? And never, why is there a standard for the human body? We settle for asking, why can't those standards include me? Instead of questioning why there is a standard issue human body in the first place. The theater that we engage in around beauty and pretending like it isn't completely outside of your own control, pretending like you have more power than you do when you're beautiful, capital B. This theater that we engage in, it allows us to keep the veil between the worlds up, one where we know what we are and are not, one where we can pretend that we earn beauty and thus you earn access, you earn worth, you earn safety, you deserve it. We get to lie and say we deserve it when we don't. 
We get to lie and say it's yours if you try hard enough. And the feeling of deservedness, that is powerful. It is the grease that allows you to capitalize and weaponize the beauty that you know is rotten and stinking. When you are able to say, I earned this with your money in the gym, by your makeup skill, via the man that chose you, whatever, it is all the easier to cast aside who cannot or who choose not to do the work, to do the work of being beautiful. You get to do that and you get to pretend that you are not making some ugly negotiations. I want us to be so for real. Can we, Lakin, you and me right now, be so for real about the choices that you make when you decide to hinge your life on beauty capital. Be so for real about the choices that you have to start making, the negotiations that you have to start being okay with when you make your life off beauty capital. And this is me speaking as someone who has, on more than one occasion, who has time and time again, been in professions, in hobbies, in personal circumstances, in viral situations where I'm making negotiations based on how I look, how I sound, how people are gonna perceive me. Be so for real, be for real about the choices. If it's a hierarchy, that means there are haves and have-nots. And if you are actively participating, right? And, and for many of us, we don't have a choice. It's compulsory. I'm not blaming you, I'm not calling you a bad person. But if it's, if it's a matter of have and have-not, that means that you're stepping on somebody to get where you are. Be honest. If it's a matter of have or have not, that means the basic necessities of humanity that are afforded to you, afforded, right? Afforded to you because you, in quotes, deserve it. Mean that it's not happening for the have-nots. If that's the case, that means that we are marketing, manu we are manufacturing scarcity. Scarcity of love. Scarcity of resources, scarcity of intimacy, scarcity of being treated like a full and complete, whole, robust human being. There is no scarcity of respect. There is no scarcity of dignity. But in the beauty system, if we're all to our, if we're all to participate in the cult of beauty, right? We're marketing scarcity of dignity so that there can be haves and have-nots. Be so for real. Be for real. In my original publishing of this essay, I was very like, I digress. I was about to get on the soapbox, the soapbox that I just got up on, but I was like, oh, I digress, and I moved on. But I want to be honest. Be those of us black girls, or those of us that were raised as black girls, regardless of what you ended up as, those of us black girls engaging in black girlhood that had a chance of being the exception, we go through intense training on how best to market ourselves. We are trained from, from little, a little, little, little ages about poise, thought, presentation, perception of self that is honest so that we can always take a strong self inventory and then know how best to market ourselves. We are taught the rules of the game and given the license to abide by or break the rules of beauty based on what we want in this world. It's true, we should be honest. I remember my mother giving me constant feedback about my outfits, my cultural markers, my makeup or lack thereof because I never wore makeup or earrings on a regular basis. And that man, you mad, she used to be mad about that. 
I thought these lessons were useless and dated and her comments on my body completely out of pocket and just useless, right? Especially because these lessons were constantly framed in the want of a husband. Ismatu, if you don't do this, if you don't do that, you're never gonna get a husband. I was like, fuck that nigga today. Who is this man stressing me out? I'm nine, I do not care. I thought these were, you know, the old head musings of someone that came up in a time where women were not allowed to have bank accounts without a husband, okay? I was like, I see you, I get it, but girl, this is the 21st century, the world is different now, I can do what I want, da 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 da. And then I got a little older. You know what really happened? Like, I'm for real? Like, if we're gonna keep it two verbs, we're gonna keep it a buck? I started interviewing for college. I was 17 and I learned that my interviews with these like white corporate men debating on letting me into Dartmouth or wherever went better when they thought that I was beautiful, point blank. I learned that there were full ride scholarships to some of the best schools in the country on the table and it could very well be the difference between me getting them and getting the hell out of my house and not was whether that white man interviewer thought I was pretty. And I'm so dead ass. When I had to sit up and sit, you know, tits and teeth, pretty and 17 in front of these white ass men that were oftentimes obviously alarmed at how pretty they thought I was and knew how inappropriate it was, but they gave me deferential treatment anyways, then the marketing started to matter. When I realized how much power I had and being a young, classically intelligent, well-spoken, pretty-ass black girl, I reviewed my mom's lessons. I started to pay attention. I'm being for real. That's what happened. There is a certain amount of beauty capital available to black girls that read, write, and speak, okay? White folks will always cut a check for the next Toni Morrison. They know that we, the black academic, the young black girl academic, the actually, no, it don't even, youth isn't even helpful there. Just the black academic, especially the black female academic, they are the beating heart of the art of the academy. They're the culture of their academy and they know it, but don't let you be pretty. Ooh, you, you, you young, you black, you well-spoken and you pretty, wow. You read and you're pretty. You'll never hear the end of it. I never heard the end of it. This is what I'm saying, right? I, I don't just get to digress. I'm telling you all this. When I started making negotiations between what I knew to be fair and the life that I wanted, when I was 17 years old, plodding away out of the suburbs of Arizona, and I don't fault my 17-year-old self for this. I'm not trying to go back and say, ooh, way to negotiate your politic, way to sell out. Bitch, do you know, like, people were dropping left and right around me from drug abuse. That's what goes on in the suburbs of Arizona when you live in the middle of fucking nowhere, when there's nothing around you but new development houses. Everybody medicated, everybody's medicated. Your mom, your little brother, your three best friends, everybody. People around me were dropping left and right. I had, a ha I had classmates, plural, dying from heroin overdose robbing their own parents and parents of friends for more money, raiding their family medicine cabinets. Everybody was medicated. Suicide was common, multiple high school classmates. Death was common from driving under the influence. We were wasting away. There is nothing out there for you. People go to Walmart for fun, we were wasting away. And I was looking around 
wondering how I was gonna make it the fuck out of here. I almost did not graduate high school. This is like, I'm not, gonna, I'm not about to say that these are secrets. They're not secrets to me, but like, I know that people don't listen to my podcast or read my essays or watch my TikTok and assume that this was the case, but I almost did not graduate high school for how much poverty induced absence I incurred. That last semester of high school, I had 32 unexcused absences and the limit is 10, I had 32. Those bitches wanted to lock me up for juvenile truancy. They called me a delinquent. I got a court summons in the mail. They said, bitch, this, you, you can't graduate. I, oh my God, I was about to not graduate high school. So yes, that is, that is the season of life. By then I had perfected my eyeliner. That's when I figured out how to do Disney princess makeup, how to make my eyes look bigger, how to slow down when I speak, how to pick dresses that made white folks with money, white folks with recommendation letters with opportunities, overlook the stench of poverty. The only reason, I'm gonna tell you, I'm so for real. The only reason that I graduated high school and got to go to college was because my principal, who knew me as a sweet, pretty church girl spelling bee champ, called the district upon my behalf, called the courts upon my behalf and told them to lay off. He made the call. He said, Eastmatu is going to Northwestern on a full-ride scholarship. We're all just going to shut the fuck up and let this slide. That's what happened. It was because my beautiful mother stayed bribing the attendance ladies with her insanely good meat patty. She's an amazing cook. I didn't even have to go to trial. It was criminal truancy. I didn't even, I didn't even have to go to trial. They just let me on through. I fundamentally do not know that it would have went down like that had I been some sort of structurally ugly. If I were a fat black girl that reads, if I were a disabled black girl that reads. I am a thin, able-bodied, bright-eyed, white-toothed, pretty black girl that reads. And so I made it to elite college and I kept negotiating. We're still negotiating, me and this body that breathes. We've been doing this little dance for so long, I can't even tell what's a choice and what's not. I don't have any judgments to make on myself because it's like, it was a false choice. What choice is there? Be exploited or exploit. That's the world that we live in, right? There's no clear line between oppressor and oppressed. For a lot of us here, near the top, but not quite, what choice do we have? It's still, and it don't make it right. I'm not trying to justify myself. It's never gonna be right. But what it did was make sure that I lived to adulthood. Beauty is very precarious. It keeps me alive while also keeping me drugged. And I mean that, you know, that's a cute metaphor, but also like it took me five months in the club circuit to start doing capital D drugs. <laughs> and I'm also grateful that my, I hate my life and beauty is all I am so I'm gonna do drugs phase happened to me when I was in graduate school and not in high school because I don't know that I would have made it out of high school beauty bought me a ticket out of drugs for survival as a teenager and into a life of doing drugs with millionaires but you see how it's always it, it, my life is sadly melodramatic whether that's literal for you or whether it's metaphorical for you beauty never buys you freedom Beauty will never buy you freedom. That is above beauty's pay grade. And it will always be above beauty's pay grade because the people that are keeping you on the leash, the people keeping you in the zoo, 
Those are the people that are signing the checks. Okay, now I digress. <laughs> I want us to be honest about, I like, I want us to be honest. I want, I want to be honest about the ways that I benefit from beauty capital because it's a double-edged sword for me. The other group that benefits from the performance of choice are the world makers here, the men. The people that cut the check. We vote and we walk in the beauty pageant so that the oligarchs in charge can look fairly and judiciously elected. And then, Jesus, LA. As my best friend B says, what is this, Gotham City? Anyways. And then, right, when reworked or more inclusive beauty standards emerge, it's just a coincidence that they happen to have their subjects in swimsuits, drinking liquor, laughing, belly up for the men who lick their lips. It's, it's, a, it's a miracle that it's still centered on male desirability, all of these brand new beauty standards. It's still marketable at its finest, and if not marketable, at minimum, desirable, consumer-ready, safe to eat right out the packaging. There is a reason that I only like this shit when I'm drunk. So we giggle at the grills, and we float happy and full of alcohol at this never-ending pool party, and we never think about the position of the status symbol void of true power only being loved with possessive conditions attached we're not quite rendered speechless of course you can make a couple statements with your fabrics and your patterns okay like you can engage a little philanthropy but at the end of the day you are in large effect a purse you're no better than a, a very shiny birkin Hopefully you're expensive, but at the end of the day, a fungible item, raw materials used in the dreams of the powerful. Your weighted creation, and don't stretch further than what the check thinks is beautiful, and you might even be content, because at least you're not outside the party, standing there, sticky and sweating, sniveling, ice cream melting alone. That's what I can say, right? Like at least men want me. Actually, I forgot myself. We inside the party, we never say that. You're not supposed to say that with your chest, never out loud. Cause then what, then what? I'm hot, you're not, game over? Where is the longing in that? We just talked all that time about how important it is to do the self-flagellation we are meant to think that silently. We're, th we're meant to think that I'm hot, you're not phrase quietly and smile to ourselves and then continue on in the charade. Of course, the haves are not in paradise, but at least they are inside. We take up a chorus of self-love. Love yourself, sis. Inner peace. It's what's on the inside that counts. As the people that chose to create the conditional safeties and kisses on the forehead actively make your life worse. Material and emotional reassurance for us, tangible safety for us, self-love for the have-nots, beauty inside and out marketing for the have-nots, no tangible safety, just vibes. 
It is marketing even still. You cannot simply be beautiful and openly mean-spirited or out of balance. So in all things, you must be something to admire, something to aspire to. We shimmer louder so that inner glow gets added to the worksheet called Ways to Apologize for Yourself. The most stunning thing that you can do as an endlessly beautiful lady of leisure is to give the have-nots some work to do. This is also the social theory, just really a quick aside, but this is the social theory behind why I can take your man if I want to is an insult, right? I'm calling you broken beauty capital. Just like a pumpkin that only turns into a carriage under the right benevolent wand, beauty only turns to capital under the right kind of attention, the attention of the folks in charge. Catering to the powerful, the most resourced, the most visible gives the world makers the ability to decide what is and is not pleasing overall. It makes sure the same people are throwing the same exclusive pool parties. The dance of standards will never be equitable. The dance of standards will never be equitable. There is no such thing as an inclusive standard. The reason you establish a norm in the first place is to ascertain who or what is deviant. The reason that you have a norm, a normal, is to figure out what is not normal and deal with it accordingly. How is that justice? Where is the peace in that? Even more terrifying is considering what the menfolk who made up or modified the standards want from beauty. What do they want? Why do they do all this? What's pleasing to them is power. We already talked about this at the beginning, right? Beauty was created to make wife capital instead of partner. They make the pinnacle of beauty conveniently synonymous with what helps them concretize their world building power or what helps them put their power in cement. They will cannibalize you over it. The blackness that we pretty black girls have in common with the men that lick their lips means so little at the end of the day. Whatever power we get from being desired is not actually yours to wield. The power of the purse belongs to the owner. Power never belongs to the status symbol. The status symbol is a conduit. The power belongs to the person wearing it. Naming that you are on the outside of these pool parties, that you are trapped in desirability zoo to have the right kind of attention, gawk and throw dollars at you. That is not self-hatred. That is an honest assessment of self. Dr. Gamillam Cottam does not internally hate herself by stating what is obvious to her. That is an honest assessment of self-position. Self-hatred in the context of beauty is looking at the body of any of our breathing bodies and think we must have a standard to measure these by. That, that's self-hatred. Why would we need that? What compels us to create a norm for something that was here before we thought up the cages that we have for ourselves and our neighbors? Who benefits from us thinking that way? Who benefits from us thinking that our bodies are subordinate to our minds and that our minds' preferences are always pure. Who benefits? How easily might it be to brainwash a populace that is convinced they are alone in this world of consciousness? How easy might it be to brainwash a populace that is convinced that they alone 
are too smart to be duped. Beauty is not good capital, as stated in the name of beauty, which, I mean, no capital is good capital. Capital isn't good, but that's an entirely separate essay. The fruits of your labor, your beauty work, always result in violence for yourself, for someone else, for both. To climb higher and safer in the beauty tree, you eventually have to kick out the chair from someone else to scramble up. Be honest. Be so for real about what it costs. The top, the top place. Be for real. There's no getting around it. We might all, not all, I get it. Like, it's, it's a world out here. You might not always have a perfect choice. And especially because beauty is something that happens to you, not for you. Beauty is not something that you choose for yourself. It's something that happens to you. I understand that it's not always about choice. I just want us to be more honest about the conditions that we're in. In investing in beauty, you will always be negotiating with the death machines that chew up the undesirables. And you can become undesirable at any time. And the best, the best that you will ever be, the best that you will ever get from that plexiglass chamber is being desired by people that would kill you if they didn't want to fuck you so bad. That's the best it's going to get. We are one flat nose, run wrong family tie, one graduate degree, one cup or jean size away from swinging down there with the rest of them. You didn't earn shit. We did not earn shit. The game of beauty is always a negotiation and you will always, always end up at the bottom of somebody else's beating stick. And maybe you like that. Maybe you got a kink for pain. I, I promise you I'm not judging. Ask me how I know I promise you I'm not judging. I'm not here to change your mind. I'm just trying to call a spade a spade. I want us to be honest about what all of this costs us, costs you, costs me. Because there is a cost. And the people cashing the check, ironically, the same people writing it, you don't ever actually get to hold on to that money as the purse. You hold on to it, but you never actually get to hold on to that shit, do you? So let's return to the initial questions, right? How does the internal self coexist with the body? Here's my answer from this essay, politically, and there's no getting around that. The body that breathes is a site of politic being enacted on you or around you. Sex and gender politics occur in many ways. Why do we always think just solely of rights to reproduction? Because it's true, but that's not the only thing. Why do we never think about beauty, capital B beauty, the politics of desirability, of resource allotment and acquisition, of being decided that you are undeserving or unworthy? 1A, in what ways do they inform each other, the body and the mind? Are they ever completely separate? In my opinion, no. The body and mind are not separate or distinct. The body thinks and the mind respirates as well. I don't think it's truly possible to separate them. I think our conceptions of self have been shaped by world systems that swear to us, that swear up and down, that there is a difference. 
I don't have anything to gain from the idea that I am more of a mind than a body. In fact, I think I make that distinction because it makes it easier for me to swallow just how much beauty rules my life. And pretending that I am a mind and not a body makes it easier to pretend that I deserve the life that I have. These life-changing opportunities that have been given to me in no small part because of beautiful packaging. The sad reality that my body that breathes and breathes for me is reduced in this world to pretty packaging. I don't have anything to gain from ignoring that that's the reality of things and how precarious it is being made of paper. How does my body inform conception of self, internal and external? How does my body exact with or interact with world systems? How can I create spaces for my body, both personally and within community? And what does that safety necessitate? Remember, this was section two of the questions we had at the top. The capital B body? My body reminds me that I will not always be under the thumb of beauty. And that's the safety that I have, the promise that one day it won't always be like this. Previous to this year, this year, year 24, for me, I never dreamed of being old. I mostly spent my childhood understanding that I was pretty unlikely to survive my teenage years. And I have only recently begun to realize that I do have a rest of my life. My body's unending desire to survive has made me understand the freedom that lies in aging. My breasts sag a little bit now and I breathe honest sighs of relief. They're still desirable, ah. But my body still drips in sex and that's what people see when they see me, whether I wear my crop tops or not. Beauty and sex and supple skin and gold highlight, I know, it's fine. But the promise of old age is sweet in that one day I will be old and able to fully belong to myself. There is no safety in beauty. There is no safety for me, not while I look like this. And that's not a complaint, it's a fact. None of us are safe here. It feels good to be honest about that. That every interaction I have is colored by people liking me or loving me or being predisposed to agree with me or find me valuable or revile me or hate me because I look like this. There is no safety in that. And more than that, I can't ever really be the one to create safety for others who are punished because of their body. I am regarded as beautiful everywhere I go. I'm regarded as beautiful everywhere I go. I've been to Italy. Those motherfuckers are racist. If you saw the shock, I was 14. If you saw the shock, on like older Italian men's faces when they saw me and realized that they thought that I was pretty. It's not safe, but it's very different than being punished. It's a punishment in and of itself, but it's not quite the same as the flogging that happens to you physically and metaphorically and, and ontologically. I'm beautiful everywhere I go. I am beautiful despite the unambiguous blackness I cannot spread any safety in the position of being the exception to the rule. And it's freeing to be honest about that. I'm not the one that can create safety for other people. I am the one that works to create the space. If I have the access to the space, the best thing I can do with that is hand it over. 
What I can do, right, is disrupt the game of beauty by reminding everyone that sees me loudly that I don't deserve this and neither do you. That there is no deservingness in this game. I can ruin the fun of the victors that see their estheticians twice a month and still post bullshit like, it's what's on the inside that counts. Being pretty on the inside is unmatched. Girl, if you don't go to hell. I can talk openly about negotiations or vulnerability or isolation that come with the biting blessings of beauty. And I realized today as I was writing this that I can wait until I am old enough to see capital B beauty melt off me like hot butter. I will have made my rounds and I will have borne my children and hung up my heels and my breasts will have been hanging down to my knees and I will look like my grandmother and I will rejoice. One day I'll be free. Isma to Gwendolyn. I hope wherever you're reading or listening to or watching this, that the work of your day passes through your hands with ease.